This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15. S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 335 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Jason Redman. Now, Jason is a career Navy SEAL. He was wounded in combat and has since written several books and is a public speaker. But what you will glean from this conversation isn't so much the power of his mental and physical journey after injury, but the power of his humility and the leadership lessons that Jason teaches us through this conversation and through his incredible books. So before we get to that interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating we get truly does make the podcast more visible and therefore easier to find. And as I mention every week, this is a free library for you, the audience, to use individually, to use in your department, your business. So all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women's stories so that we can get them to every earhole on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Jason Redman. Enjoy. So Jason, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I'm honored to be here. Uh, I've been waiting to do this for a while now. Many of our mutual friends have been on, uh, Jason Shegdeli, Greg Armanson, Josh Mance, Jay Dobbins. I know you, you're all in the Eagle Rise Bureau there as well, but they all mentioned getting you on. I'm so glad we're finally able to do this. 
Uh, James, thanks, man. No, and all our amazing guys. I mean, uh, uh, every one of them, just incredible stories. So I love uh, I lo- and unique. So I love getting to hang out with all those guys when we're together. Beautiful. Well, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I am in Virginia Beach, Virginia. This is the home of the East Coast SEAL teams. And uh, I spent my entire career here. Uh, now I've been here for hard to believe 28 years. Amazing. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning. Your your story, you know, has got so many elements to it. I think the one that I was most surprised at when I read the book was the power of humility and ownership that you have in your story. So I would love to start at the very beginning and kind of explore where that all factors in later in life as well. So where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? What did your parents do? So I was born in Ohio and uh, our, our family dynamic was um, a small town kind of uh, um, uh, east of Columbus. And my family at that time owned kind of a, a real estate company and we're doing pretty good. And then for whatever reason, all that kind of fell apart. And uh, my, my mom um, met my dad. She's a naturalized citizen from Canada. My grandparents immigrated from France to Canada. So kind of interesting. Uh, my mom, when she moved to America, she was 24 and didn't speak any English. Um, so just a, an interesting process, how all of us came together. Uh, but that did not last. So my parents divorced and I started to bounce back and forth between the two of them over the years, um, you know, up and down the East Coast, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida. Uh, my mom went to the Virgin Islands, so I lived in the Virgin Islands for a while. So and I, and I do want to say none of that was a hard um, childhood per se, Um you know, my parents were both loving individuals. You know, I, I, you know, I wasn't abused or anything like that. Um, so because oftentimes people say, man, did you have this hard upbringing that led you to have this overcome mindset? And, you know, none of that happened. I moved around a lot. I had to make friends in different places. Um, but, uh, definitely living in the Virgin Islands gave me an appreciation for the water. And, uh, you know, I love to swim. I bodyboarded a lot when I was younger, uh, snorkeled and got a taste for scuba diving. Um, you know, so, and my dad was in the military, my dad, before I came along was in the army. So I had grown up hearing these stories about him being in the army, both my grandparents on both sides, my grandfather fought with the, uh, uh, um, French Foreign Legion and my, um, my, my dad's father was a decorated B-24 pilot flying with the Army Air Corps in World War II. So I grew up with these stories in the military and it's all I ever wanted to do. So from a young age, bouncing around between my parents, uh, that's really my sole focus. And uh, that's how I ended up going down that road. Brilliant. And what about athletics when you were young? What were the sports that you loved doing? So I, I'm a late bloomer. I'll tell you that right now. I'm, I'm not a big guy. Uh, you know, currently I'm uh, 5'8 and about 170 pounds. So when I was young, uh, I was always on the smaller side and I didn't get into sports until probably in the ninth grade. I went out for the football team and, you know, I literally was the 95 pound weakling back then. 
But there was just a fire and a drive in me. And the more people told me I couldn't do it and the more people tried to lay a hard hit on me, um, the more I wanted to get back up and do it again. And, you know, I was never this star athlete in high school, but I was I learned a lot. I learned a lot about uh, resiliency. I learned a lot about getting back up every time I was hit. I learned a lot about being a part of a team. And then I also wrestled. Um, and that was another great sport that built some mental toughness. So because uh, I, I got humbled a lot. I, uh, I actually wrestled under our 119 pound state champion. So he uh, he whooped up on me on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, I always, always, you know, just fought hard trying to figure out a way to beat him. I never did it, but uh, definitely I learned a lot. Yeah, so it sounds like with the moving around, you know, having to, you know, constantly be having the new guy and, and, and working almost emotionally hard in that space. And then physically, I was a very small kid as well. I, I literally had my growth spurt at 18 years old, which was, you know, very embarrassing. But, um, you know, again, you, you're constantly the smallest kid in the class. So that was the kind of building the resilience and the hard work element that probably served you in the future. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And, and, I, and there was something in me, um, it's just something in me that if you told me I couldn't do something, it would just always light a fire. It would just infuriate me. And I would just say, you know what, I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, and, and, and as I get older, that's both a blessing and a curse. But uh, when I was younger and definitely overcoming some bigger obstacles, it was uh, it was a blessing to be able to drive through and just push through adversity because of that belief. Yeah, well, I know you got ridiculed trying to enlist as a SEAL as well. So I'd love to hear you know that story and then how you found yourself standing in buds. Yeah, so when uh, when I decided I wanted to be a SEAL, I was about 14 years old. And probably 15, I went to the recruiting station for the first time. It happened to be close to my dad's office where he worked. I was walking home from school. And I just popped in there and I told the guys, hey, I want to be a SEAL. And there was a... Uh, <laughs> an old crusty boatswain's mate and uh boatswain's mate in the navy they're the deckhands they're the guys that work the 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 lines and the rigging and uh the anchors and they paint the ship so you know they're truly regarded as the real sailors in the navy and uh usually all tatted up and this guy lived the role uh just a really crusty guy and man he took one look at me and was like get the hell out of here you know stop wasting our time you know you're 95 pounds soaking wet i'm not going to waste my time on you and you know tried to chase me out of there um i kept coming back and i just you know was insistent this is what i wanted to do but finally he he very <laughs> deliberately chased me out of there and uh but thankfully i didn't let it dissuade me uh uh, I will say for a hot minute, I almost went and joined the army and uh, just a couple of things unfolded that didn't make that happen. And right about that time, after that whole army endeavor didn't work out, a new recruiter rolled into the Navy recruiting station. The guy was super cool. His name was Henry Horn. If anybody out there ever hears this and knows a Henry Horn who worked in Lumberton, North Carolina and was a recruiter, I'd love to connect with him because to this day, I've never found him. And uh, he helped me get to uh, SEAL training, got me enlisted in the Navy and walked me down the right pipeline. So, uh, so big shout out to him, you know, big shout out to all the people in your life who believe in you and, and 
help you to accomplish your dreams. You know, everybody out there has somebody that believed in you and helped you. So make sure you take that time to reach out to them because uh, all of us need help to get where we're going. Yeah, well, that's a that's a theme that's come up a lot recently with you know some of the unrest that we're seeing at the moment um, is there's a disregard for people like that. And I, and I hear story after story after story with the people that come on the show who I've either brought on because they are that person or, you know, that, that are men and women in first responders or military professions who that one figure was the one that either took them off a very bad, dark path or just guided them out of a very, let's say, a soft upbringing and, and filtered them through to the military or other professions. But I think that's what we need to see right now is that the world is full of people out there that are doing great things in the community, that are functioning as mentors for young men or young women and and sending them into an incredibly positive path. Uh, it's James so true, man. It is uh, it is a little heartbreaking to watch right now. I mean, we you know we we want to highlight and sensationalize the bad that's out there when there's so much good. And uh, I've been all over the world, and at the end of the day, people are people. Human beings are the same. I don't care race, color, creed, religion. Uh, they, they, they want happiness and they want to have, uh, they want to raise a family and they want peace and they want to be able to go do their job and be productive and do what they like to do. And I don't care if it was in Iraq or Afghanistan or if it was in the jungles of Colombia, uh, or right here on the streets of America, people are the same. And it's, it's, uh, heartbreaking to me to watch right now the, the division we're seeing and this idea that, you know, I don't know a class or a version of people are just bad just because of who they are. I mean, the reality is, unfortunately, there are some human beings that are bad regardless of the color of their skin or where they came from. And there are individuals who are amazing uh, regardless of the color of the skin or where they came from. And I think that's what we need to focus on is the the goodness that exists in people because it far outweighs the bad. But the national media and social media only highlights the sensational and the bad. Yeah, there was a very powerful picture of a, a protest in London, and it was a, a, a white guy. And I believe they'd come down. I think they were a kind of national front, kind of hard right, um, racist element. But this one guy had found himself separated from the mob and was getting basically the shit kicked out of him by a bunch of um, you know the black protesters. And this one guy, well, she was he, he's very honest. He said a few of them actually rescued this guy first. He just happened to be the one that picked him up. But he's taken um, you know, this one basically hateful white guy away from the ass kicking that he was getting. And that moment, that picture summed up perfectly what the solution is, you know, that you are that kindness amongst the hate. And if, if enough of us all band together and share that love instead of that, you know, two wrongs make a right philosophy, then we're going to we're going to change that. And like you said, if the media can highlight all the good things, all the good moments, you will reframe this whole issue and realize that these extremes are the minority of this country's voices. Yeah, agreed. Right. Well, then back to Buds. Um, being a smaller framed man, um, tell me what got you through such a, you know, a revered um, crucible as Buds. You know, I mean, I don't ever feel like when I went through training that I that I felt, oh, my God, I'm not strong enough or, you know, one of the things about buds and I try to encourage these young men that are going, there's a lot of young men out there that are training for to become a SEAL and they think they need, you know, to put on a lot of muscle um, and really 
there comes a time in your career when as a special operations member, obviously having muscle, functional fitness, being both strong and fast and having great endurance all play a part. But in, in SEAL training itself, it's really having strong muscle endurance with your body weight. So whether you weigh like when I did, I went through, I was only 135 pounds or as a matter of fact, seems to be the lighter you are when you go through training makes a difference. Um, you know, cause I had some really big guys in my class. One of the guys that I ended up doing platoons with later, uh, he averaged about 270 pounds and he dropped all the way down to 220 when he went through training because it's, you know, you're averaging, gosh, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of miles a week. I mean, we estimate that during hell week alone, you will cover about 200 miles during that one week between running, rowing, swimming, everything else. So the reality is, um, I was pretty well prepared when I showed up to buds. And I think one of the things, one mindset, uh, I just had a very tenacious mindset that I wasn't going to quit no matter what happened. And I'll be honest, I think genetically, I was also, um, I didn't ever hype out no matter how light I was. Um, you know, there's a lot of time and I, and for those that don't know what that means, I never got hypothermia. Um, you spend a lot of time in very cold water. We have an evolution called, uh, surf torture, uh, which I believe they call surf immersion now. But, uh, <laughs> <Torture> yeah. <laughs> yeah, torture has become a politically incorrect word, but, uh, you would lay in very frigid water and they, you know, they have tables. They know if the water temp is 54 degrees, we can keep you in that water for, let's just hypothetically say 20 minutes before the average person will get hyperthermia. And then they pull you out there, doctors and medical staff on scene, and they go down the line, they check everybody for hypothermia, and then they put you right back in the water. And we definitely had guys that would hype out. And, um, and you know, the solution to that is they would warm up your core temperature and then they would put you right back into the cold. And honestly, I saw a lot of those guys quit because I think such a shock to your system to be freezing and then suddenly warmed up in a hot tub and then placed right back into the cold. Uh, and I never had that happen. So I think genetically, I'm fortunate that even though I was skinny, um, I was able to endure the cold. Uh, and don't get me wrong, it was miserable. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm much older now and I hate the cold. I don't want anything to do with it if I can help it. Yeah. Well, we have the other side of the spectrum in the fire service where it's the heat. And I've asked people, I forget who it was, I asked someone the other day um, about that, you know, because it's, it's so hard to acclimatize to not be able to get heat off your body. And our gear is designed to keep heat from the outside away from us, but also it has the reverse effect too. And, you know, at 46 years old now, I mean, I still to this day never, never got that point where I felt comfortable in, you know, it was, it was absolutely horrendous. So it's interesting, you know, the, either side of the spectrum, that misery that men and women endure to, to fit the job description that they're going to have to do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really what it is. I mean, you nailed it. It's uh, having the ability to endure, endure discomfort. And I, and I think that's the secret to success with many things in life. Understanding how to endure discomfort because it's going towards a specific goal that you want. Uh, in your case, the fire service. And in my case, obviously, to be a SEAL. Yeah. Well, so when you entered um, the, the platoon, you were pre-9-11. And you were assigned to um, 
missions in uh, Colombia and Peru fighting the drug trafficking. So tell me about that because I'm, I'm very intrigued from your perspective at how you, when you look back now, the effectiveness overall of what we call the war on drugs. You know, uh, so one, it was an amazing experience for me because here I was and I was, understand, I was really young. I mean, I was 19 when I graduated from SEAL training. So by the time I got my Trident, I think my first deployment, I was 21 years old and headed to South America. Um, so here I was, this kid that, you know, I'd seen a little bit of the world on the East Coast. I'd been down into the Virgin Islands, but I'd never been beyond really the borders into third world countries. And um, so it was both exciting. It was both exciting and it was enlightening. And um, and to go down to some of these areas of the world that are dangerous. I mean, Colombia at that time was a very dangerous place. Uh, Peru was a dangerous place with some of the, uh, the Sendero Luminoso was regarded at that time one of the very uh, dangerous uh, terrorist organizations. And within Colombia, you had the FARC, which was the uh, basically the guerrilla force that was for the overthrow of the Colombian government. And the FARC oftentimes would provide security for uh, the narco traffickers or the cartels. So uh, it was exciting for me as a young kid to be down there and both enlightening. Um, were we making a difference? You know, I'll be honest. I think I was probably too young to be able to look at the world through that lens. Um, I was down in the real tactical hands-on level. And we weren't, you know, a lot of people think of, um, I don't know, some of these movies and things like that. I mean, the U.S. was involved in the drug war, but oftentimes what we were doing was more of an assistance mission. So we were not there to actively target um, drug cartels or anything like that. We 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 weren't allowed to do that. So instead, what we were doing was providing support to the local Colombian forces through assets, training, intelligence, things like that. And uh, so we were on the fringe of it, uh, but we weren't actively now. You know, I talk about in my book one time that uh, we thought we were going to be overrun by a very large FARC force because the reality is even though you were there not actively targeting the um, cartels and drug runners and things like that, uh, they definitely, if they knew you were providing assistance, could be actively targeting you. So we were on a camp out in the middle of nowhere uh, in southern central Colombia, and we thought our camp was going to be overrun. We took some fire and uh, and nothing ended up happening. But that was kind of my first time that I had been shot at and experienced, you know, hey, man, this is for real. So um, so definitely an interesting experience. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I'll be honest, I really loved uh, Central and South America. I love the Colombian people. I love their culture and who they were. Um, I really enjoyed it down there. I learned fluent Spanish, uh, although I'm really bad at it now, but uh, definitely appreciated my time down there and learned a lot. Brilliant. Well, because um, I, I love the perspectives from all these different people. I've had several people on the show now that have talked about countries that have decriminalized or legalized 
um, addiction. So not trafficking, not selling, but the actual addicts with incredibly high successes. You know, the, the addicts become a patient rather than a criminal. They get filtered through the medical system rather than the prison system. Um, and it's a very proactive model. But then the also the other side of it is you kind of cut the head off the snake of the illegal drug trade. So now the, the streets are safer. The police are able to focus on, you know, the more dangerous criminals. Um, and it's a model, I think, that I, I would love to see in the UK, in the US, in Australia, and all these other countries that have that old war on drugs model. Um, with that in mind, you know, from your perspective and what you saw, were you actually boots on the ground? If that kind of thing was put in a place where the drugs were taken out of the hands of the criminal, what, what kind of knock-on effect do you think that would have on some of the international drug trades that you were seeing when you were younger? I think it would probably have a pretty big effect. And I'll be honest, you know, one of the things that I do notice um, in any war, so if it's a drug war or if it's a, you know, the war on terror where we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, there's always a group that is, you know, the dedicated fighters. And then you've got the sympathizers and then you've got just the local population. But what often happens, and I saw this down in Colombia, is oftentimes locals, uh, because <clears throat> the economy is being driven, it's disrupted by war. In this case, you had FARC that was controlling large areas of Colombia and the cartels that were dominating areas of Colombia. Oftentimes, regular people uh, couldn't get regular jobs. So what, what would they do? Well, they would grow coca to make some money. And they weren't necessarily high-level drug runners or anything like this. They were just somebody that was trying to make a living for their family. Um, and I saw this overseas also. I saw this in Iraq and Afghanistan. Oftentimes, we'd wrap somebody up that, you know, we'd get intel that they were a bad guy. But you come to find out that, you know, some member of Al-Qaeda had paid them 50 bucks to go plant this IED. And it's the only thing they had ever done. Uh, but they needed money. They needed money to pay their family. And they didn't, you know, they really didn't have hate uh, for the United States or for us. It was merely an opportunity. So if you remove that factor and you allow people to go back and live their lives in peace, uh, I think it would reduce a lot of just the average person who's doing things for opportunity to just take care of their family, which is what I saw in Colombia also. Yeah, and that was a very powerful perspective. I remember reading that in the book. You're saying about the ten percent, you know, the the diehard jihadists, and then and then you know that large portion was the men and women, and, and whether it's you know whoever it is that's been on the show, Australian and English, you know, American, um, they say the same thing. Most of the people we saw were regular families doing these same things that families do in the U.S. So if yeah. you're able to remove that cancer element from that country, then the majority of the country is going to go back to living a civilized life. Yes, absolutely. And and I'll be honest, it's a little bit of a fear of what I'm seeing here right now. You know, there's this large division that's occurring and there are, you know, are people on one side of the spectrum. You know, uh, if you look at some parts of the Black Lives Movement, it is it can be very militant. Um, you know, you've got Antifa that's playing a part into it. So, you know, do you pull other members into this just because they end up becoming opportunists? You know, they're just trying to, you know, make a, their way in the world and they feel pressure to be involved in this when normally they wouldn't be. Yeah. And I think, you know, we can talk about leadership. I think that's a big thing. There's this kind of a recurring theme. There's a lot of good people in the middle 
they just need a little nudge, just a little leadership. And the problem is if they're led the wrong way, then you end up with, you know, some of these atrocities. I mean, Nazi Germany is a perfect example. Not every German believed in that, but there, you know, there was a slow application of pressure that kind of push them in in the wrong way and then and then the converse i think is completely true if we have people at the top of whatever governmental building you have in a country that are pushing gratitude and kindness and compassion amongst you know the things that you need to in a country then i think you sway that large majority in the positive direction absolutely i agree right well then um, what is interesting to me as well is that you and a few of the other SEALs have been on the show. Um, pre 9-11, obviously the, 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 the mission became very different when, when you went out into the Middle East. So with you having quite a lot of time pre, pre 9-11, what did your training look like pre? And then, and then what did you witness the shift in, in training after 9-11 hit? So I think with any military, police, or any force, you have a tendency to train based off um, the last time you were seeing real-world things. So in our case, uh, the last time the SEAL teams had seen long, sustained combat was during Vietnam. Um, they're, they're, oftentimes, the SEAL teams weren't doing long movements. Uh, you know, Usually, they may insert by a boat, and they would move in a little bit, and they would set up ambushes. They would set up reconnaissance, things like that. Um, they also they had a mindset of massive amounts of firepower to repel the enemy. So they were carrying a lot of ammunition. Um, so this is the way we trained. <clears throat> we quickly figured out that when you got into Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, so one, uh, you know, desert, urban so a lot of movement, a lot of up and down, a lot of climbing over things. So carrying a lot of weight was very combat preventative. And this is something, if you go back and read military history, it is a problem that's occurred throughout military history. Uh, if you go back to the Roman legionnaires, there was a period of time where, you know, they would pile on more and more weight until they got into combat. And then they quickly figured out that, hey, this doesn't work. And, you know, they'd see prolonged periods of combat and it would always scale down. And it happens in every military military in the world, uh, including the American military, you know, you go through periods of peace and we start piling on more and more weight until we get into real combat and realize, hey, that doesn't work. So between that, between different environments, jungle environment, much different from a desert urban environment, much different from a mountainous uh, urban environment, it caused us to change all our tactics. So everything I had learned prior and felt comfortable doing uh, really had had changed overnight. And uh, that led to um, that led to some challenges for me becoming a new leader in this new environment. Well, that's a perfect segue. So thank you for spoon feeding me that <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you know, over 9-11, you um, got into officer school, the, the Siemens Admiral program. Um, so tell me about before and then tell me about you know, after. So as far as your own uh, perception of your leadership and then kind of what you found when you went back out into the field after the uh, the training. So I had, a, I had excelled really well up to that point in my <clears throat> military career. I mean, I, I excelled pretty quickly as a young enlisted guy, um, you know, different positions of leadership within my platoons. 
uh, got selected to uh, be a training instructor and was, you know, leading in different areas within training. And then, of course, being selected for a commission, a pretty prestigious program, one of 50 out of the entire Navy, uh, and then went off to school and uh, managed to work my way up to the top leadership position of the ROTC program and, and to be ranked number one by the time I left. So I really, um, really thought pretty highly of my leadership skills and, you know, believed I was going to go back to the SEAL teams and just excel and came back to the SEAL teams as a young leader. And really everything had changed overnight. So I had gone from a peacetime military uh, to a wartime military. And I'd gone from working and leading guys who um, didn't have combat experience to suddenly leading guys who had a pretty extensive amount of combat experience with all new tactics. Um, and I was, I'll be honest, I was playing catch up. Um, I was behind the power curve. Um, and instead of kind of slowing myself down and, and humbling myself and saying to the guys around me, hey, can you help me? I don't, I don't understand how to do that. I saw that as a sign of weakness in a leader. Like, hey, you're a leader. You should know how to do this. And even more so, you're an ex-enlisted leader. So they expect you to know more than the average people, uh, than the average new officer. And, um, you know, so I, I think there was a strong push to prove myself and an unwillingness to humble myself and say, hey, I don't know how to do these things. So all of that came together to just kind of be this perfect storm where I was making mistakes. And instead of slowing down to try and fix these mistakes, I just kept trying to push harder and which would make some more mistakes. Uh, and that coupled with the fact I did what, uh, you know, the military is a heavy drinking community. Uh, and the peacetime military, the peacetime SEAL teams was a very heavy drinking. I think we've kind of slowly, well, I mean, it's still obviously a part of the military community, but, uh, I probably embraced it a little too much. And, you know, as I was going through, um, these hardships, I started drinking too much. And, uh, this on top of some of these mistakes I'm making, I was making was damaging my credibility as a leader. Um, and all of that kind of came to a perfect head with, uh, by the time we finally deployed to Afghanistan, I made a bad call on a mission and thankfully, uh, nobody was lost on that mission. Um, <clears throat> but it did, it did cause guys to question my leadership and tactical decision-making ability. And in a special operations unit, one of the strengths of the SEAL teams, in my opinion, is rank has a place but at the same time, it is not the end all be all. So if you have a officer who, you know, tries to order an enlisted guy to do something that is tactically unsound, um, you know, there may be a time and place that they're going to do it. But afterwards, they're going to say that was a totally bad call and you could have potentially cost lives. And if all the enlisted guys say that officer's dangerous, they'll get rid of him. And that's basically what happened to me. Uh, I had guys that questioned my abilities and, and, and it came close. I had some uh, individuals that said, get rid of that guy. You know, he's a drinker. He's made mistakes. He made this bad call on a mission. And thankfully, I had leadership that believed in me and said, you know, you've done a lot of great things, but I don't know, somewhere along the way, you've gotten off track. Uh, we need to humble you. And uh, that's how I kind of went down this path where I ended up getting sent to U.S. Army Ranger School and was told, hey, you're going to go to Ranger School. You're going to get a second chance and you're going to come back and 
you know, be a part of another platoon in the same position you were before, which is the number two position. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you better be flawless. And if you're flawless, then you'll get your career back on track. And if you're not flawless, you'll be out of the military. Yeah, well, I want to get to the Ranger School in a second because you had such a great epiphany that I think needs to be underlined. But um, before that, so being part of a, such a cohesive group and when you started talking about being ostracized by the men that you were leading, I could see that in the fire station and, you know, the the, the EMS and, and law enforcement arena where you you touch on it. You know, if, if people are making fun of you, that's a good thing. If people aren't talking to you. That's the worst thing that can happen. And that being out there, you know, deployed with, with your team, but being taken from that must have been crippling. So how did you deal with that mentally before, you know, we'll talk about in a moment, the, the upswing again? Uh, I'll be honest, it probably is the hardest and darkest uh, moment of my life. I mean, a lot of people believe that my injuries I sustained in Iraq were the hardest things I went through. But by far, to be to be told you don't measure up in a community that's so hard to get into uh, was a crippling blow. And to have friends of mine basically kind of turn their back on me, um, you know, and I don't blame them. When you make a mistake, when someone, um, you know, it just is what it is. But, uh, yeah, for, for a short period, I was suicidal. I mean, I thought about taking my life. And, um, and to the point where I literally had my pistol in my mouth and thinking about doing it. Um, thankfully, um, I didn't and, you know, thought about my wife and kids. Uh, and just I also thought about the fact that, I mean, I kind of view suicide as the ultimate form of quitting. Um, so I didn't and basically uh, went and sought out some religious support from the chaplain, the special operations chaplain, and, you know, just focused on trying to drive forward. And I'll be honest, it wasn't, you know, oftentimes um, a lot of people who hear me speak or read the book or think about things think that there was a sudden light switch moment that occurred. But I'll be honest, it it took about six months from the time that – that this instance occurred in Afghanistan for me to sort through everything that happened and I kind of grow up and and you refer to the epiphany moment in ranger school. Really, it was in ranger school where <laughs> several other things happened before I finally had this epiphany moment um, to, to really grow up and understand what it is to be an effective leader and to really to have an appreciation for who you are as an individual, uh, both your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Well, in the book, you describe really well that struggle so you go into ranger school you know your your pride is still very very inflamed i guess you'd say um you're looking at ranger school as as a punishment so you know you 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 talk with one of your peers and he kind of reframes the entire experience for you so if you wouldn't mind kind of leading people through that because i think that was such a powerful moment uh, of, of perception of your own reality yeah and this is a really unique moment this uh you know I'm, I'm uh, a religious, I'm a Christian, uh, so I call it a God moment. Some people can call it fate. But uh, I, I went into ranger school, like James talks about, with a bad attitude. And, um, and I'll be honest, in that first week, I just did not want to be there. But I also was still so arrogant that I thought that ranger school was going to be so easy that I could do it with a bad attitude and not being a member of a team and just grind my way through it. 
And I didn't. I ended up failing uh, one of the first evolutions in the first week, which was the land nav course. And uh, all this rage and anger and bitterness uh, over everything that had happened kind of boiled up in this moment when I failed. And some of the ranger instructors, I, I just being a SEAL in ranger school draws a lot of <laughs> negative attention. Uh, so between the negative attention I was already getting and then failing this one evolution, uh, all of that came to a head. And I call this weak emotional leadership when you allow yourself to melt down. And I did. I allowed myself to melt down. And I, I for all intents and purposes, quit ranger school for about a 18-hour uh, period. Um, and I had to go see the ranger colonel. And I went and saw the ranger colonel the next morning kicking myself. I've never quit anything in my life. And that's the only thing that I've ever quit like that. Um, and just really convinced that my career was over that, you know, they were going to send me home and I'd be out of the military and I was going to have to go figure out how to create a new life. Uh, and the Colonel, you know, he asked me and I still was spilling this sob story about how I got thrown under the bus and how I was a victim and all these things. And he happened to be good friends with a senior SEAL leader who had been my mentor, who had been my commanding officer, who had helped me get my commission. I mean, a guy, probably one of the more respected leaders in the SEAL teams. And he called him and he happened to be there. And he is probably the only person on this planet that I would have talked to in that moment just because I had so much respect for him. And he got me on the phone and he said, do you honestly believe this is punishment? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you know, even if it is, don't you think you could learn something from it? Don't you think you could get better from it? And in the moment, I didn't. I wasn't open minded enough uh, to see that. But um, he said to me, you know, there's always things that we can learn and ways to drive forward. And then I told him something which has become the foundation of a lot of the leadership that I teach now. I told him, I said, I don't think I, I said, I think it's too late. I think I've made too many mistakes. I don't think the guys will ever follow me again after what's happened. And he said to me, People will follow you if you give them a reason to. He said, go back to this school, crush it, set the example, come back to the SEAL teams and continue to do the same thing. He said, it's never too late. You know, people will follow you if you give them a reason to. It's just human nature. And uh, and he was right. And uh, it was kind of in that moment that the light bulb started to go on. And I realized that, you know, it's never too late to turn it around. Um <laughs> So I asked to be put back in the, my ranger class after I'd been out for 18 hours and the colonel and they don't do that uh, for anyone. And he said, absolutely not. But he said, I'll put you in ranger jail um, and you'll wait a month and then you'll roll into the next class that starts next month. And uh, it was probably one of the better things that could have happened to me because it gave me a month really to dig deep into who I was and to come to grips with the fact that um, I wasn't a victim. Uh, that all the mistakes that, well, I was a victim, I had a victim mindset, but all the mistakes that I had made put me in that place. And poor leadership on my part had put me in that place and uh, really shifted my mindset for driving forward to both finish ranger school and how I started to to lead as I went forward in my life. Yeah. And one, one thing that struck me was, I can't remember exactly which chapter it was now, but you also talked about self-assessment and asking yourself, are you a SEAL or a firefighter or a police officer because of the cool factor 
or you do you truly have that burning desire to serve? And I see that burning desire in all the men and women that I respect, all the ones I know that do their job incredibly well. And some of them, it just gets dampened for a while and they need to revisit. And some of them have a rude awakening at whatever point in their career where they realize, okay, I wasn't, their why just wasn't that strong. So um, what was that experience for you like personally? You know, a lot of that wake up call occurred while I was in that downtime in Ranger School with individuals that I'd had conversations with. I mean, I had a guy I really respected, the LPO of my platoon in Afghanistan when I got myself in trouble, who called me on the carpet for that. He basically said, you know, I've always wondered, are you a SEAL because you think it's cool or are you a SEAL because you truly believe you can make a difference for our country and to be a part of this team? Um and, and that really angered me. But I'll be honest, when I was in ranger school, it made me take a look at myself and say, you know, regardless of what you believe, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with, uh, ex- you know, to do things in a service industry earns a level of respect, um, you know, whether it's being a SEAL or whether a firefighter, um, you know, SWAT team sniper or whatever it is, you know, people respect individuals who are willing to put themselves in dangerous way. Uh, And it's okay to appreciate the coolness that comes with that. But at the end of the day, there are people's lives who are on the line in these types of um, professions. And I think really understanding the significance of that. And I think that's where I really came to grips with, you know, hey, it ain't about you, man. Um, It's about those guys next to you. And it's about making decisions that are for the for the unit and for the community and, and all these other things. And you've got to really place yourself last in that equation. Absolutely. Well, when you complete Ranger School, which you do very successfully, tell me about, you know, the, the experience you had the other side of that and how you were able to do exactly what your, your peer had told you, which was to slowly brick by brick build that trust back up again. Yeah, I mean, I came back to my uh, platoon and, you know, nobody was waiting for me with great big open arms saying, oh, my God, you made it through ranger school. We're so glad to have you back. Uh, aside from my my new boss, my new boss was amazing. He was a great mentor and just hats off to all the great mentors that are out there and individuals who are willing to look at somebody that's made mistakes and say, hey, I don't care about your mistakes. All I care about is what you do from this point forward. And that's he sat me down in his office the very first day. And that's what he said to me. And uh, and he also told me, I'm going to give you opportunities to lead and I'm going to give you opportunities to prove yourself. And he absolutely did that also. And uh, and and it was great because not only did it build my confidence back that had been shaken from some of the mistakes that I had made, uh, it also showed my teammates that, hey, he believed in me. And I also had the ability to do uh, some hard situations in training uh, that obviously translated to the ability to do that in combat. Now, with the with this new deployment, and you're now, you know, obviously very much embedded in the you know the the wartime element of your SEAL career. The when you when we get forward to you know when you were shot, um, well, some something that stands out very clearly to me as a firefighter and a medic is you falling to your level of training. So what did your what did your training look like leading up to that point? So I, I think the SEAL, <clears throat> the SEAL teams, in my opinion, um, 
and, and I've worked with every branch of the military, every special operations unit, and I think they all do a great job. But I think the SEAL teams are, are, are almost sadistic in how we train. Um, we try to come up with the absolute worst, most grueling, most brutal scenarios we possibly can think of. Uh, you know, we want to push guys right to the very edge of uh, what we, you know, can do in training without, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, if it was possible for us to shoot at guys in training for real, we probably would. Um, but unfortunately, obviously, we can't do that without injuring people. And we do injure people. I mean, that is the reality. We push all the way to the limit in training uh, and we take all the risk uh, mitigation that we can. We do we we do everything we can to mitigate that risk. And unfortunately, sometimes guys get injured and killed in training. When you train at that level, um, I think it prepares you for these moments. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about in his book, you know, you've got to do something 10,000 times before it becomes what we call muscle memory, um, where you don't even think about it anymore. And I think that's critical in a job where you do emergency. And this is why I'm a big fan of programming your mind. I talk about the overcome mindset. I talk about getting off the X. Uh, because if you program your mind to do it over and over again, I talk about the react methodology in my book, uh, a sequence to deal with uh, crisis or adversity in your life. When those things happen for real, your brain kind of goes to mush. You, you know, things are happening so fast in a major crisis or emergency situation. You don't have a lot of time to think about, oh, my God, this is happening. What should I do now? You're going to revert back to what you've trained to do. And if you've trained as hard as possible and you've done it over and over and over again, you will go back to what you train to do and you will do it in that moment. And, uh, you know, that is what we did in that firefight is we started taking highly effective fire. I mean, I was hit eight times in that gunfight and, um, and my teammates did an amazing job. Um, you know, I was hit and quickly realized I was out of the fight. Uh, I was pinned down by that machine gun and I knew, so what I, I talk often to other people about you have to you have to control what you can in chaos. Um, so many people focus on the things that's beyond their control, uh, but it's that's wasted time. It's wasted emotion. It's inefficient. You know, you got to come down to the most basic thing of what you can control. And I realized when I was out of that fight, um, I <laughs> the only thing I can control in that moment was me. And uh, we had trained that if you are injured, you have to save yourself first. You can't just have some medic run forward enemy fire to try and save you because then he's going to be hit. Now we have bigger problems. So I knew I was trying to get my tourniquet on uh, to try and save my own life. Uh, I also was focused on trying to conserve energy to just stay alive, you know, telling myself to stay awake, to stay alive. And all that came back to our training. We had trained extensively for these things. You know, if you get shot, you know, you got to take care of yourself first. And then, you know, when when we win the firefight, that's goal number one. They have to win the firefight. And while that's happening, you know, try and find some place where you're um, not being actively shot at anymore. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to control that. So I didn't stress it. Um, I just focused on, OK, try and get a tourniquet and try and stay alive. So all of that came back to training, training and mindset. And uh, anybody can do it. You don't have to be a SEAL to do it. Um, you know, you can you can really train your mind to deal with adversity just by 
programming yourself to say, well, I'm not going to sit here and focus on the things that are beyond my control. I'm not going to focus on the past. I'm only going to focus on what I can control in the future. How do I focus on moving forward out of this situation? Now, what about um, planning, you know, contingency planning? Because one thing I've seen in great fire departments I work for is you can never, you know, there's not a script for every call that you go on, but you can definitely build a skeleton of what ifs, you know, to, to deal with the scenarios. So they're not a surprise. Conversely, in, in very poor department that I work for, there was not even a thought given to that. So, you know, there you are, you've been shot in the arm in a multiple, multiple places. You got shot in the face. So pretty horrendous, life threatening. Um, injuries, yet you still fought, you still, you know, were able to ultimately find your tourniquet because of your training. You knew where it was, you knew what it felt like. Um, you know, wh- how much prior to this incident did you, did you focus as a team on the what ifs, if this goes wrong, if this goes wrong, so that you, you know, at least had some sort of semblance of, um, comfort if God forbid the worst case scenario unfolded? Uh, a ton. Um, and I will say not everything went according to plan and, and by any means, I did not get my tourniquet on myself. And this was a lesson learned that I now talk to a lot of guys that are out there on tourniquet placement is, uh, is an incredibly important thing. I used to wear my tourniquet. It was on the left side of my body armor, uh, attached by three thick rubber bands. Well, I was shot in my left side. So I was having to reach across my body with my right arm um, and, and laying flat on my back after I'd been shot in the face and, you know, almost had my arm blasted off. Um, and I could not get the leverage uh, to break these thick rubber bands. Um, so I never was able to get that off. But it was my team leader who ran forward and dragged me back who ultimately got a, a tourniquet on me and saved my life. So now I talk to guys, you know, you should think about if you have lost blood and you are weak, are you still able to leverage and get your tourniquet off. I mean, just these are things that you got to think about. Um, So there's one instance of something that we had planned and planned and planned, and it didn't work out the way the firefight and the way that situation unfolded. But, you know, everything else, um, we fell back to our level of training and definitely those contingency plans, because you can do everything you, you, you can train a lot. But the reality is, no situation will ever exactly unfold like training. Some will, but sometimes when things go horrifically wrong, it's unlike anything you can ever uh, think of before. When um, in June, we got into a big firefight, uh, a really big firefight, and uh, we had 11 women and children that were in the middle of this firefight. So we're now having to protect women and children. And, and you know, it was chaos. So we had never trained for a situation like that. And I'll be honest, it was not an encounter in my mind like, hey, this could happen, Uh, you know, that you're going to have to, you know, we had had to protect women and children that happened to be on a target, but not in the middle of a gunfight. So sometimes there are things that are going to unfold. I will say anytime I went on a mission and I would encourage if you're a police officer or you're a firefighter or a military member or even in life. Um, whether you're in sports or you're in business, you should be thinking through how is this going to unfold uh, before you go. I, as I was getting ready for missions, you know, we did tremendous amounts of study and, you know, four or five, six hours, we would do mission prep where we would be analyzing the imagery. We'd be looking at the target we were going to take down. We'd be looking at the terrain and the buildings around it. We'd be looking at our, our routes to go in. 
And I would be playing in my mind all the way through. I would be visualizing, okay, if we're here and this happens, you know, what are we going to do? If we're here and this happens, what are we going to do? So that now, not only do I have my training to fall back on, I've already been pre-planning those contingencies in my mind. So at least if something happens, uh, hopefully I'm not totally caught off guard. Yeah, well, that seems very um, applicable at the moment with some of the the police videos that we're seeing. Obviously, there are some blatant, horrendous disregard of any responsibility whatsoever, like the George Floyd murder. There's a lot of the gray area videos. I just saw a terrible one this morning someone posted where it was two officers and they were unable to restrain this one guy. And then he ended up getting to his car, reaching in, pulling out a weapon and shooting them both. So, um, you know, th- that's that's a perfect example of... Some of these departments that haven't embraced, you know, physical training, jujitsu, um, tactical weapons training, all these, these areas where we can improve, whether it's law enforcement, fire, EMS, corrections, um, our ability to, to have the smaller steps. So if something goes wrong and you're an officer that's never trained, it's not from verbal de-escalation immediately to discharging your weapon, for example. Yeah, I agree. And although I, I it, it, it's it's troubling to watch as someone who made a living for a period of time in my life with a gun and had to restrain people. Um, I don't think the average civilian that's out there understands the level of split second decision making that has to be made when you're in a dangerous situation. And and we train extensively for this so much more. I mean, we do thousands and thousands and thousands of what we call close quarters combat house runs where you're going through and, you know, one time the target will have a gun and the next moment the target will have a cell phone. And and you've got to make that split second decision. Oh, cell phone, I'm not going to shoot or, oh, that's a gun, I'm going to shoot. So it breaks my heart to watch some of these scenarios where I believe police officers are acting correctly but the public not fully understanding. And I, I don't know why we've gotten into this warped sense that, you know, a, a individual that is resisting arrest for whatever reason, that his rights for life are much higher than that police officer. Um, and, and my fear is, uh, and I don't know, some of this happened with the crazy um, anti-movement against our police right now that police officers are going to start erring so far on the side of not making a decision because they're afraid of the repercussions against them that more and more police officers are going to be killed uh, or injured because, uh, unfortunately, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be so deterred from taking deadly force against somebody that may absolutely deserve deadly force. Yeah, no, I agree. There's a, there's a, a sheriff's deputy, Brandon Coates, who's a local one in the department I work for, and he was killed. He was in the fire station with one of the other crews, left and was, was found shot to death um, after a traffic stop. And he had deployed his taser. So he'd gone for the non-lethal uh, option and it cost him his life. So that's the thing with those gray area ones is, you know, there, there are some blatant disregard ones that, you know, that that's the honest island of its own. But those gray area ones are where either, like you said, you know, I mean, the, the person try to go for the officer's weapon, for example, that's that's the point of no return then. Um, but there's also areas where administration needs to provide more training for these officers. There's obviously the ownership of the individual as well. But we can we can fix some of these these areas where um, 
you know, where we are losing people from either the civilian side or the police officer side with more training and higher standards. Yeah, absolutely. But that takes actually the opposite of what's being pushed right now, which is more money and more training, better, higher levels of training. Uh, and, you know, with this idea, oh, we should defund the police department. I mean, you're, you're going to accomplish the exact opposite thing. Yeah. Well, and then what we were talking about earlier, in my kind of perception is, well, we're still looking at the symptoms rather than the systemic problem we have with drugs. You know, our, our prison system not seemingly rehabilitating, but just growing and growing and growing. There's there's systemic society um, areas that we can address that hopefully would make less crime in general. So put everyone at less risk. Yeah. Big problems. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I love about this, though. I get to ask all these different people and you see these lines start to intersect. And when you hear from men and women that have been out truly putting their lives on the line in whatever arena they're in, that has a lot of value. But most people that turn on the TV, they don't hear Navy SEALs and police officers and, you know, medics and doctors talking. They hear journalists and, you know, whoever was passing by on the street at that moment. So yeah. I think it's very important to get that perspective. No, I believe there, and, and it is the opposite. Once again, it comes back to funding. I mean, if the American people want to, um, and I think there is something to say for this, uh, the military has the same problem. Sometimes we recruit bad apples, but obviously within the SEAL team, there's a much higher selection process that occurs. So it's pretty rare that you get an individual uh, who, let's just say, is morally corrupt. I mean, I'll be honest, when I watched the George Floyd video, I watched an individual, it was about power. They, they, that position was held in a, in a move of power, in my opinion, from what I saw. Having detained people. Um, so how do you recruit to try and educate? And that, that happens through training. You know, it happens through training and, and hard scenarios and, you know, getting people to understand, you know, muscle memory that they know where to apply uh, the right level of force. I mean, overseas, we called it escalation of force. I don't know if the police department used the same thing, but the, yeah, the reality is that takes, that takes training, uh, uh, selection and time. Absolutely. And I saw that with, I've had two kind of spectrums or two sides of the spectrum in my fire career and the, the, you know, what I would consider the best department, no disrespect to the others, but it was the, the one that the training, the entry standards were extremely high. Your one year probation, they had no qualms of letting you go if you didn't meet the bar. And then the rest of your career, you, your, that training level was still held high. So if you, like you said, invest in your police departments, you know, get them where they're, they're not understaffed and overworked, you know, and, and then, keep that bar high, then you are going to, like you said, you're going to weed out the bad apples because the ones that are there for the cool factor won't last because the only the ones with the burning desire to serve are going to, you know, be able to deal with being held to that high standard every single day. Yep. Brilliant. All right. Well, then going back to, you know, the, uh, the injuries you sustained. So kind of walk me through not only the physical, but the mental journey that, that you took. And then obviously your, your family as well. It must have been devastating for them. Yeah. I mean, I'm really fortunate. I mean, on the family side, my wife is amazing. Um, and, and, you know, we often get a lot of relationship questions. And for individuals, if, if you are a, a young individual out there that's getting into a relationship, you know, uh, I would just say choose wisely, you know, make sure you know that person through and through, uh, go through some hard times, uh, before you finally commit. Cause hopefully, 
you know, it'll last forever. And, you know, I think it has become a trite phrase for better or for worse when you, you know, enter into the vows of marriage. Because uh, my wife, man, she she definitely stepped up. Um, and, and having my kids there also, you know, my kids taught me unconditional, unconditional love. I was really afraid of what my kids would think after I was grievously injured and, you know, facially disfigured, um, in the beginning. And, uh, and, you know, they didn't at the end of the day, they were like, Hey, dad, dad's dad, you know, he's still dad. He looks kind of funny, but he's still dad. So (laughs) those were things that I, uh, that I learned along the way and that really helped with my mental healing. Uh, physically, it was a pretty grueling journey. Um, you know, it started out with being in the hospital and being told, hey, we're probably going to have to amputate your arm with the amount of damage you've taken to your elbow. And we don't know what level of nerve function. My hand, my left hand didn't work at all. Um, and my elbow was effectively destroyed. I took two rounds in the elbow. I took one in the lower bicep and I took one on the inside of my arm. And then of course I took the round to my face, which did a tremendous amount of damage to the right side of my face, took off my nose, um, cheekbone damaged my orbit, you know, the housing of your eye, it broke the bones above my eye, broke my jaw, shattered my jaw actually. So, uh, it was a pretty long, hard road, uh, to wake up, um, and, and be facing these very hard medical decisions. You know, where do we go? What do we do? I'll be honest. Some of it once again is fate. Um, I think if I had had any other doctor, uh, any other regular doctor probably would have amputated my arm because I think that's probably the easier road, uh, with the amount of damage and with the initial assessment but it just so happened that my doctor, uh, the head doctor at Bethesda, when I got there, was an ex-SEAL. Uh, so he was a SEAL who got out and then went to medical school and came back into the Navy as a, uh, as a doctor. So uh, he fought to keep my arm. And uh, I don't know if anybody else would have done that. And now to this day, I actually have, you know, I have limited range of motion. I still have some nerve damage. But I mean, I, I, I did my first full MRF. Um, you know, workout the other day. And I have actually did now told or originally I'd never lift more than 50 pounds with my bad arm. And I've, I've deadlifted uh, 365. Now my goal is to get to 405. So um, and that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have somebody who said, Hey, I'm going to fight for this. Um, and, and then, you know, facial injuries and the facial reconstruction was a long, hard road. It took about four years and 40 surgeries to get me put back together. But um, I just focused on, you know, the good news was that I had been through the I had been through the leadership failure and I had to come back from that. And to this day, I still say that that's the hardest road I've ever walked. Um Because the difference was that leadership failure, I kind of had to walk it alone. Um, If I had said I'm leaving, there wouldn't have been anybody, maybe besides my wife, who would have said maybe that's not a good idea. Uh, You know, I think for a lot of guys, unfortunately, when you're in a professional situation like that, they would have gladly said good riddance. Uh, It was up to me to show I had the ability. And that was a much harder road as opposed to when I was injured um, granted I had to walk it alone, but I had a lot of support. 
I had built back great relationships. I call this social leadership in my book. How do you invest in the teams of people around you? And when you have crisis, when you have life ambushes, it is that social leadership that's totally going to play a difference in your life. And uh, it played a tremendous difference for me. I mean, I had teammates, I had close friends, I had my family, I had my kids. Um, All of that was uh, tremendous in helping me to drive forward after my injury. So, and that's what I focused on. I just told myself, hey man, you've been through SEAL training, you've been through Ranger School, uh, you've been through this other hard experience, you know, with what you went through, this is merely another life ambush. This is merely, I, I called it medical buds. So SEAL training is called buds. I called this medical buds. You're going to take it one evolution at a time and you're just going to focus on moving forward and getting to the other side. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so powerful as well hearing you talk about that because the time you had the gun in your mouth, physically you were un, unharmed, you know, but you had lost that tribe. You'd lost the, the trust of your men and women. You were, you were in that state of kind of guilt and shame. Um, and yet there you are with the injuries. And I know you were worried, like you said, about, about the disfigurement and, you know, your children. And obviously they saw daddy. So, but despite that, you know, mentally you were in a much better place because you had your tribe. You had those people. And it really speaks so powerfully of the power of, community, the power of tribalism that is so important in the human spirit. Yep, absolutely. And it absolutely makes a difference. But you got, you know, people need to understand you've got to invest in it. You know, you've got to invest in your family. You've got to invest in your friends and the people around you. Uh, You know, it can't be a one way street. No. Well, in in the book, you talk about, um, I don't know if it's the book or the podcast, actually, but um, because I listened to you on, on Jocko as well. But tell me about the leadership fence, because I thought that was such a, a simple analogy. But, you know, it, it's something that when you can picture it, you're like, okay, now I can see which kind of leader I am and where I need to start traveling towards. Yeah, it was just the leadership fence is an idea that came about just from seeing all the different great leaders I worked with and bad leaders I work with, and even myself being a bad leader at, at, at one time. Um, and how easy it is to, to slip away uh, from that good leadership that we need. Uh, and the idea is this, that imagine, if you will, like a chain link fence. And the chain link fence represents where you are in your leadership journey. Uh, on one side of the fence are the individuals who report to you. And on the other side of the fence are the individuals you report to. And, and everybody has a natural tendency to connect better with one side of the fence or the other. Um, you know, I was an E1 in the Navy and grew up on the enlisted side. So I connected better with the guys I grew up with. Um, other individuals may come into an organization later and um, and they may connect better with the leadership side, you know, the individuals they report to. But no matter what, communication is the critical component of leadership, your ability to communicate back and forth, to communicate both with the people you lead and to communicate um, to understand those who lead you uh, to understand their guidance and be able to communicate that back clearly and also to be able to report problems and, you know, whatever is going on. How far you are from the fence, though, creates problems with communication. So if you connect better with the individuals you lead uh, and you're so far away from the fence that there is really not a whole lot of communication that's occurring with the people that lead you and the guidance they're providing, that creates big problems. Um, 
and the flip side of that fence, if you connect better or aspire more to make it up to the next level of leadership and you're not connecting and communicating with the people you lead, that obviously creates all kinds of problems also. So where do we want to be? We want to be right up against the fence. Um, regardless of which side you connect better with, you just want to be up against the fence. So you, you have that ability to both communicate clearly to the people you lead and to be able to communicate problems and understand the guidance of the people who are, are leading you. Um, the best leaders I ever saw had the unique ability, and I'll tell you, I never got to this level, um, but the truly best leaders I ever worked for had the ability to kind of stand on top of that fence. Imagine, if you will, there's like a like a board on top of the fence and the greatest leaders have the ability to stand on top of that board. And it's easy to know who they are in any organization because they're the individuals who are revered across the organization. If you were to go into any firehouse, police department, military unit or company and say to the mail clerk and the CEO, hey, who's your go to guy or gal? You know, the 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 individual that everybody goes to when there when there's a problem Uh 90% of the time, people will say the same individuals. And those are the individuals who are standing on top of the fence. They are respected across the organization. They are looked up to from the leadership and they are looked up to from uh, those they lead. And, and that's a really hard position to be in uh, because you, you hold yourself to a very high standard. Um, you lead yourself always. You follow the three rules of leadership, which are lead yourself always, lead others, motivate and inspire others, and then lead always. You know, you can't pick and choose where, when you're going to lead. Um, but they have the ability when they stand on top of the offense to, to, to really have a good view of an organization or a company. And, and to see problems as they're arising because they have this higher level view. And then when there's a problem arising, they will jump down on either side of the fence to help fix that problem. And then when that problem's fixed, they get back up on top of the fence. Um, you know, so that's where I encourage people to get to. Uh, it is very hard to get there. You know, it requires balance. And sometimes you'll go through phases of your life where you're up there and you'll get knocked down and you know, maybe you need to fix some things, but you fix things by getting back up against the fence and then ultimately, you know, climbing back up. Yeah. And I just, it made perfect sense to me. Again, I, I never got anywhere near the middle. <laughs> I think I was still, you know, I would, I never really considered myself as in any leadership position in the fire service. I mean, I definitely wasn't rank wise, but um, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of get, it's very easy to get comfortable in one spot too, and then kind of surround yourself with a wall. Well, this is who I am. This is the way I work. Um, so yeah, it was a really great, um, analogy for where we should all aspire to be from, you know, up, up, down or from down up. But I also want to highlight the book, The Trident was so well written. And, and what I loved about it and what I love about some of the men and women have come on here and told, I mean, just, you know, that tragic upbringing, some, some devastating, um, you know, near death experiences either by their own hand or someone else's, um, is, vulnerability and honesty and you know you could have written a book about your navy seal career you know with your injuries and everything but it could have been very heroic and people still would have read it but you you were so honest that you know a majority of the book is is just page upon page of, of how you made mistakes and i think that that was such a powerful leadership book for me to read because it was it was ownership and it was um uh, you know, humility and, and having the humility to truly accept 
when you've made mistakes to me is the is the the first ingredient for any of us to grow and actually consider ourselves a leader it, it is i mean um i don't know if there's a lot of books i've read out there that uh that I know individuals that wrote those books and they never touch on any of the mistakes or the problems they encountered along the way. They only highlighted the, <clears throat> the highs of their career. And I know for me, I learned my biggest lessons in the failures. And, um, you know, the other thing I thought about in the book, I was like, you know, there, there's enough books out there that are like that. Um, I know people make mistakes. I know people fall and have to pick themselves up. And that's really who I wanted to target. Um, and, and it has been amazing. I mean, I've had so many people reach out to me and say, thank you, man. I, I made a big mistake in my career and, and your book showed me that I can come back from it. And I think everybody's like that. I mean, life is hard. We're, we're all, there is never a perfect road. Um, as a matter of fact, when I interview people, I like to ask them, hey, tell me about a big failure. And it's always interesting to me because people who are transparent and honest, they'll tell you a really big failure. They'll tell you something that may be uncomfortable or awkward for them to talk about. And I know that person is true. Uh, and then there'll be people that'll just gloss over it and they'll tell me, you know, like nothing. They'll give me a little bit of fluff. And, uh, you know, nobody's perfect. So I know that they're, that may not be the person I want to work with. Absolutely. Well, so the first book was The Trident. Tell me about Overcome. So The Trident was a memoir, was my memoir. It is the story of my journey through the military. And uh, obviously, there's tons of leadership lessons that you pulled out of it. But everybody kept asking me, well, how did you do that? You know, we, we read it. And there's a lot of lessons. But how did you do that? What was the step by step process? And that's really what Overcome came to be. Uh, Overcome is the how-to book to the Trident. Um, definitely with more lessons that I learned along the way. Um, I went on into business. I ran my own nonprofit after I got out and I made mistakes <laughs> in that too. Uh, I learned a lot from that. I actually got involved in a bad business deal that devolved into a lawsuit with a, a guys who I thought were my friends. And, uh, and it got really ugly. And I learned a lot from it. Uh, and that was another ambush that I went through in my life. And I ended up having to go back to the tools that I had learned both in my in my military career uh, on how to navigate off that X, if you will. So I, I tell all those stories and I interviewed a lot of other, you know, amazing individuals. Uh, I interviewed Stan McChrystal. I interviewed uh, uh, Bill McRaven, Admiral Bill McRaven. I interviewed uh, Admiral Eric Olson. I interviewed Jocko Willink, a uh, friend of mine, Congressman Scott Taylor, all guys with special operations background. I interviewed wounded warriors, amazing wounded warriors I'd met along the way who had overcome their injuries or overcome some sort of major obstacle in their life and then related them to everyday life and how people can take these things and make them work in your life and in your business. So, yeah, I mean, some of the, the leaders that you've mentioned, I'm having kind of leader uh, envy at the moment because, yeah, I mean, you really have hit some some very, very, you know, powerful men and women in the military. So what did you learn, for example, like um, General McChrystal, uh, as, as a pretty accomplished leader yourself now with all the humility and lessons you learned from, from those uh, you know, revered leadership figures? I learned that uh, no one is perfect and no one is immune um, 
I remember years ago, I once asked a leader who I really respected, um, did he ever have doubts? And he said, no, never. And, and, uh, and I'll be honest, that really kind of uh, screwed me up for several years. Because I was like, man, you know, I have doubts. You know, I wonder, is this the best decision? Is this that or whatever it is? And I came to realize that that guy was full of shit. Um, <laughs> you know, so it is not a sign of weakness as a leader to say, I have a doubt or uh, I've got a problem or I'm struggling. Uh, as a matter of fact, in my opinion, the best leaders have the ability to do that, but they still drive forward and make decisions and they still seek out the guidance. I mean, that is the difference. And I real and I came to understand that some of these leaders who I had placed on these super high pedestals who absolutely deserve to be on those pedestals, they weren't perfect. They didn't walk through life and, you know, <laughs> never, ever doubt themselves. They struggle just like anybody else. But the difference is, uh, they struggle faster. You know, they get off the X faster. They grab the information they need. They go through that process and they move forward faster. Um, but at the end of the day, many of the things that I wrote about in the book, these guys provided um, uh, power and weight to it, which was exciting to see. So um, I don't know if I necessarily learned anything groundbreakingly new but it definitely reinforced a lot of the things that I was trying to convey to people. Brilliant. Well, you'd mentioned nonprofits as well. So before we start recording, you touched on um, aligning with some nonprofits from the mental health and TBI space. So tell me about that. Yeah, I ran a nonprofit for about 10 years and we did a lot of great things. But uh, as we were getting as we were getting further along, we were losing more and more veterans to suicide. And I know law enforcement and fire is having unprecedented rates also. So, um, and, and all of that kind of culminated, I had had several friends that killed themselves. And then I had a close friend who was supposed to go through a leadership program we had created in the nonprofit who killed himself only a couple weeks before he was supposed to start our program. And it really made me take a step back and say, man, is what I'm doing in this nonprofit really making a difference? What is the biggest difference that I feel like we need to make? Well, I think it's we need to try and help uh, stop this uh, epidemic of suicide. And it also made me realize that I used to believe that PTSD could be combated if we could just get help guys and gals find their new mission. And if you had a purpose, then it would fix your PTSD. But I've come to realize that that's not true. Um, there's all kinds of death that comes to PTSD. And then there's a whole nother factor when you when you take into account traumatic brain injuries. And if someone has a traumatic brain injury from blast or, you know, concussion that occurs in the military, it can disrupt their brain patterns to the point that they start to lose who they are uh, and, and can ultimately lead to suicide. And we were starting to find more and more. So I'm working with two groups now. Uh, Project Headstrong, uh, their website is getheadstrong.org. They are providing free mental health services to 9-11 veterans across the country. And they're doing it incredibly fast. They have an entire network of licensed psychologists and psychiatrists across the country who said, hey, I will help. I will be there. And uh, if you call for a buddy or you call yourself, they try to place you within 24 to 48 hours, uh, which is much faster than the VA. The VA is backlogged trying to provide the 
mental health support and I've watched guys that have reached out for help with the VA and have ultimately killed themselves because they can't get the immediate help they need. The second one is the Concussion Legacy Foundation. And Concussion Legacy Foundation is the same foundation that gained some notoriety with their focus on the NFL and concussions within the NFL. And uh, and there are some people that don't like this because they're like, oh, you're you're damaging this game that we love. But there's a lot of football players that are suffering massive guys who played football their entire life and we're doing concussion. We're doing uh, uh, full contact football at a very young age. Uh, and sustain massive concussions over the years, well, there is a, a degrading effect on your brain with the more concussions you, you encounter. So we're seeing more and more football players that are suffering from something called CTE, um, which is a degenerative brain disease caused by concussion. Well, we are starting to find out that military members, special operations guys, and Frontline combat guys are experience this a lot also. Ours is a little different. It typically is blast related, but the the effects are about the same. And it is a degradation of who that person is that oftentimes is ultimately leading to suicide. And the problem is it can't be diagnosed. Um, the only way they can find it is postmortem in an autopsy uh, at a cellular level. So I'm partnering with the Concussion Legacy Foundation. We are trying to encourage veterans out there to pledge their brains. And uh, don't worry, they won't collect early. Um <laughs> I, I pledged mine, but if you are a combat veteran out there, go to uh, Concussion Legacy Foundation, look up their program, project, and list, and you can pledge your brain. And guys, it is an amazing way to give back at the end of your life to fellow veterans because it's only through the study of the brain that we're going to better understand the impacts that blasts are having on our veterans. And hopefully someday... Hopefully someday be able to stop this this virus of suicides that we know some of it is linking back to uh, blast injuries. Yeah, and I've, I, this has been a recurring theme, you know, with some of the guests as well. And you look back at like Junior Sayers and even the Aaron Hernandez story. Um, you know, they do post mortems and realize, yeah, there's this visible um, anatomical damage to the brain. And another layer that you guys definitely experienced, and I had Kurt Parsley talking about this is um, sleep deprivation. So you've got the damage from the concussion, you've got the damage from sleep deprivation, and that's a double whammy now. And, you know, you've got these uber-resilient men and women that stand on a grinder at the beginning of their career, and then all of a sudden, you know, like you said, they're, they're at a point where their mind is so scrambled that suicide seems like the only option. So to me, the the, the science is fantastic and we need to support it, but, I mean realistically we know what happens to to boxers you know we know what happens to the brain when it's when it's hit the coup contra coup and all. I mean, it's very well studied so the next step like you said is is to let's start doing something about it how can we start reducing the impact on the brain in all these arenas that we work at and then what can we do to repair the damage whether it's supplementation or you know bariatric chambers or whatever these different you know things that people are starting to see are, are helping so that we can even reverse some of this damage yeah, I agree. That is the goal. So brain research. So we got to take care of the guys, you know, the mental health right here and now and <clears throat> get headstrong is doing that with our 9-11 veterans. And then, uh, you know, the long term brain research. So 
so yeah, anybody out there, uh, these are two great groups that are trying to do good things. Brilliant. Well, I want to transition some closing questions so I can let you go. We talked about your books, The Trident and Overcome. Um, is there a book someone else has written that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we discussed today or something completely different. Uh, my my go-to SEAL book that people always ask me, is there any really good SEAL books? It's uh, Fearless, written by Eric Blem, and it is about a fellow SEAL and a teammate, a friend by the name of Adam Brown. And Adam was just an amazing individual. Um, and I'll be honest, I did not know the demons. Um, I, I, I don't want to give the story away. So I'll just say Adam fought some major demons his entire life. But his story of resiliency and overcoming, and then ultimately he was killed in combat uh, March 17, 2010. So the story is amazing. Uh, I think it gives a tremendous view into the SEAL community and the humanity that, you know, hey, we're not superhuman. Um, you know, we may be able to do some incredible things and overcome some major mental barriers. But at the end of the day, everybody's human. I don't care who you are. So that's a great uh that's a great motivational story. Uh, and then probably the other book that I really like I read recently, I've been recommending to a lot of people is uh, it is called, um, yeah, Hannibal and Me. So what history's greatest military strategist can teach us about success and failure. And uh, I really enjoyed that book. It's it's probably a little bit more of an intellectual book on leadership, but it it relates it much more back to individuals, including Hannibal, including some of the Roman leaders who fought against him and just some incredible stories from history and, and how how different scenarios lead to different um, levels of leadership. And uh, that's one of the better books I've read in a couple of years. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Yeah, I've had Fearless recommended multiple times and, and rightly so. And Hannibal means a new title. So thank you for that. Um, what about a movie? Any movies that you love? <laughs> uh, my top two favorites are The Matrix and The Last Samurai. And then what about a documentary? Have you seen any of those that resonated with you? Yes, by far. Uh, it is the documentary, um, uh, what is it called? Free Solo? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Alex Hanoop, I amazing. That is the most incredible documentary. And I'll be honest, that documentary made me like question like, man, am I a big wuss? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It's amazing. And the number of people that have seen it that said, like, I, they were literally, like, a nervous wreck watching it from the comfort of their living room, just just watching him, you know, um, climb without without any ropes. And it was just mind-blowing. But what, a, what an amazing story to underlie the importance, again, of training. And then, like you said, those thousand-hour mentality. It, it's true. And I've tried to relate that to people. I've been talking to people about that, that he literally, he did that climb over and over and over and over and over again. And granted, there were massive levels of danger in what he did, but uh, he mitigated that danger just by his preparation. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Have you ever had Tim Brown on? You know, I haven't yet. And when I was looking at the Eagle Rise site, I remember that someone had recommended him before. Yeah, Tim is uh, amazing. He has become a dear friend of mine. And his story about 9-11, uh, you know, all of us, all of us that are, you know, what, 25 and older, you know, 
remember right where we were when 9-11 happened and when and Tim was there in the towers as everything happened uh, and miraculously survived and uh, by sheer fate and luck. Um, and but when he tells that story, you can't help but remember where you were and just incredible. Yeah, well, I need to I definitely need to get him on. So if you're able to help me connect, that would be amazing. Yep, absolutely. Brilliant. All right. One more question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress these days? Uh, not enough right now. I, my favorite thing to do is to ski. Uh, so a family, you know, we, our family, that's probably the biggest thing that helps me decompress. And we typically plan a big ski trip once a year. We try to do two. Um, you know, my dream someday is to own a ski condo slope side that I can ski in, ski out. That's like my ultimate goal in life that I can take my grandkids skiing and just, uh, I love the mountains, uh, and being up there. So that, that's probably my biggest thing. You know, aside from that, I, I like to I like to golf a little bit. I like to uh, I like to ride motorcycles, and uh, and I like to get out there and motivate and inspire people. As you do, so thank you. Um, all right, well then, the question then: Where can people find you? Um, how can they find the books and then the podcast as well? They can go to uh, jasonredmond.com is my website, and from there it kind of takes you everywhere. Um, it's uh, uh, my social media handles are all on there. I'm on all of the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn. I'm probably most uh, active on Instagram. So if you write me on Instagram, I usually can get back to you in a couple of days. Uh, if you write me on other platforms, uh, I try my best to get back, but sometimes I don't. So I apologize for that. And then uh, the podcast on the, all the major platforms, uh, Overcome and Conquer Show. Uh, most people listen to it on iTunes. Brilliant. Well, Jason, I want to just say thank you so much. Um, you know, for people who want to hear the full story, and I tried not to kind of drag you through the story because the book is incredible. I listened to it, audio book, and um, yeah, just the, the parallels between the two of, of uh, the, you know, the, I guess, the mistakes at the beginning and then, you know, the, the humility element and then the leadership side is, is such a great read or listen. So I can't recommend that highly enough. But I also want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk today and, and get your perspective. Uh, James, my honor, man. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. <laughs>